experience that you can, you can focus on, and it will be on the road to the cross, on the Via Dolorosa. And so, those are three of the paths of Jesus. If we look at the, the road into Jerusalem, the road into the garden, the road to the cross, but if we stopped there, all of our faith would be in vain. We would be fools to be pitied if we were worshiping a dead God. But no, we recognize that he is alive. And in fact, we see him on another road, the road to Emmaus, as he walked post-resurrection, walking with these two disciples and sharing with them that all of God's plan has now been fulfilled. So as we kick off our Holy Week series today and we consider the road into Jerusalem, uh, really it was set up by that song, the King is coming. Jesus is going to triumphantly enter into the city of Jerusalem. Folks, if you think about this, the, the history of mankind truly is marked by kings and queens and kingdoms. It's marked by rulers, a succession, a line of emperors and potentates, if you will, monarchs of various sorts. Every time there's been a new king there, or a new king uh, or queen, there's a, a coronation. There is pomp and circumstance. There is splendor, an inauguration, or an installation. It may be a, a coup and a takeover, but almost every single time that new leader is set into place. In fact, I, I kind of can give you a picture if you will, of a king being crowned. And the idea of a king being crowned, that there's a, a throne here of gold and a beautiful uh, ordained uh, set of jewels, whether it be a crown or a scepter. And there's always pageantry. There's always pomp and circumstance. The new monarch is dressed in regal clothing, accompanied by their attendants and most often surrounded by warriors. They have military, their top brass, dressed in their finest. There's typically foreign dignitaries and people of high rank and importance. And at the end of all of this, that king or that queen would be handed a scepter. And that scepter was symbolic of the power that was now theirs. It was handed off to them. And as they took that scepter into their hands, musicians would play, singers would sing, and the crowds would erupt in cheers. Quite a scene if you can imagine it. I mean, think about that. A coronation, if you will. Majesty, dignity, power, authority, a display of beauty and opulent wealth. I mean, all of those things are surrounding the coronation of monarchy, the coronation of a king, the coronation of a queen. Quite a scene. It was 1838 that the great Queen Victoria was installed in Britain. And at her coronation, everything about it was absolutely astonishing. If you go back and read the history, certainly we can see those crown jewels still today. But in that day, she was given a crown that was encrusted with giant rubies and sapphires surrounding one diamond of 309 carats. Some of you ladies are looking at your left hand right now and going, I wonder how that would, how that would fit. Her scepter had an even larger diamond. It was called the Star of Africa, and it weighed in at 516 and a half carats. In fact, we have a picture of that. That's the end of her scepter, a cross on the top, pure gold all the way down with this fabulous diamond that is literally priceless. There's no way to assess the value of what was given to Queen Victoria. 
Now, as we think about this, this is the regalia. I want you to really think with me for a moment. This is the regalia and the pomp and the splendor that was given to a mortal lady on the occasion of her coronation. Everything that could be brought to bear on that woman's coronation was done. I mean, all of the expenses of this nation were lavished upon a moment in time that she would be given a tiara and she would be given this scepter and given this position of power. However, when the King of Kings and the Lord of all lords went through his coronation, we saw none of this. In fact, we're going to see this morning in Matthew 20 and 21 exactly the opposite. We're going to see that there were no formalities. There was no jewelry. There was no robe, no musicians. Uh, Indeed, it was a humble coronation, much like his birth. His birth was in a stable, and his coronation parade was on the back of a donkey. His birth was attended by shepherds who, in social terms, were the lowest of the low, the outcasts of society. His coronation was attended by a a throng of people that followed from Galilee and gathered from the city of Jerusalem. And as we look at these lowly and rejected people, not the religious nobility, not the leaders of the day, definitely not the picture we have in our minds of a coronation. Doesn't look anything like Queen Victoria. Doesn't look anything like all of the royal treatment that we would see today. But we're going to see a tale of two entries. We're going to see the first coronation, and then I want us to look forward in time at his next coming. I I want us to think through this. So today we begin these four paths of Jesus, and we look at the entrance into the city. He's on the road to Jerusalem, and throughout Christianity, this has been called the triumphal uh, entry. This has been called Palm Sunday. We celebrate this day as Palm Sunday because the crowds that day wave palm branches before Jesus. Great biblical significance, and we'll see that together. But I want us to start by getting the context. I want us to look together and see what was going on as Jesus is entering into his very final week of life here on this earth. And he is going toward the cross. He had set his face toward the cross. He knew that he had to go to Jerusalem, and here we're going to see that. By the way, you will find in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the account of this triumphant entry. And as we look at it together from Matthew 20, we're going to see the events that led up to the triumphal entry in Matthew 21. But I think it's important for you to see this story or these stories because they set the stage for the mindset that many of us display today. We need to consider this. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 20 beginning in verse 17. These are the events leading up to the crucifixion that give us clear insight into what you and I will learn along the road to Jerusalem. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, let me just stop there. He has come down from Galilee. He's been in the north. And the travelers that would come from Galilee down to Jerusalem for Passover often would pass over to the eastern side of the Jordan and they would come around Samaria. They would not travel through Samaria. Jesus had traveled through Samaria and met this woman at the well. And we see here that it says he's going up to Jerusalem. The only reason I want to point this out is Jerusalem is always up. 
It doesn't matter if you're coming from the north or from the south or the east or the west. You would climb from Jericho to Jerusalem almost 3,000 feet in elevation. So you would always go up to the city of Jerusalem. I just think it's important for you to see that. Here he is in Jericho. He's about 17 miles away from Jerusalem. He's made his way from the Galilee down, but he's going which direction? Up to Jerusalem. Hope that makes sense. It's a steep climb. You always go up. Now, it says that he took his disciples, he took the 12 disciples aside privately and told them what was going to happen to him. Verse 18, he says, listen, pay attention, listen up. We are going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed by the leading priest and the teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to what? To die, to death. And then they will hand him over to the Romans, to the pagans, it says in other translations, to be mocked, flogged with a whip, and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. No ordinary man could make claims like that. No ordinary man could predict his death, but not only his death, his resurrection. Jesus is speaking boldly with power. This is the third time Jesus has told them that he is going to die. But listen to me, folks. Now he tells them not only that he will die, he tells them how he will die. He says that he will be crucified. You need to know that only the Romans held the power of crucifixion. No other nation could enact such a heinous execution. The Romans held that in their bag of tricks, if you will, to say, we will put our boot on the throat of any enemy of Rome. And he said to his disciples, I'm going there to be crucified. There is no perhaps, there is no maybe, it is a fact. He tells them this is what will transpire. This is what is about to happen. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you react to that if you're there with them? You've been there with Jesus for three and a half years. You've walked with him. You've heard him very puzzling. He's told you some of these things that he's going to die. But now he says, not only am I going to die, I'm going to be crucified. How does that make you feel? What is your response? What is your emotion? I mean, you're tied to him. You are one of his disciples. Perhaps that means you will be crucified. Perhaps it means in your identity with Jesus, you will meet the same fate. And you don't have the same confidence to say in three days, I'll rise again. Jesus knew something they didn't. I want you to see something fascinating this morning and sickening this morning about human nature. And I don't want this to be a downer, but I just want you to see a glimpse into reality because the response of what comes next absolutely will boggle our minds. Look at this request. So it says, then, which means right after this, verse 20, then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. And she knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and one on your left. Is that not appalling to you? Jesus has just said, we're going to Jerusalem and I will be crucified, flogged, mocked, beaten, and killed. And the mother of James and John comes and says, hey, Jesus, can you do me a little favor? 
Can you help me out a little bit? I mean, my, my boys, they're good boys, Jesus. They followed you. And when you come into your kingdom, would you remember them? Would you keep them in mind? She comes and she speaks for them. Jesus has just said, I'm going to die. And she says, I want a place in your kingdom for my sons. What can you do for us? Isn't that human nature? Isn't it human nature that we want God to meet our needs on our terms? Isn't it human nature that we reach out to God so long as God has our best interest in mind from our perspective? We want God to do what we want to do. And it's shocking, except that it's so familiar to my own life. I mean, I'm shocked by this woman. How dare she ask Jesus such a question at such a time like this? The problem is, it sounds to me that her request is much like our requests. We live our lives at times that way. God, what can you do for me? God, can you in some way serve me? Can you meet my needs? Can you grant my request? Can you look out to my interests and my needs? Let me say it this way. When we pray, we better get crystal clear to remember who is the master and who is the servant. I want to put that on the screen because you may want to jot that down. Oftentimes, if you think about the posture in which we approach the Lord in prayer, it's as if we have a genie in a bottle and we rub the lamp and God, we need you to meet our requests. Jesus has said, I'm about to be crucified and raised on the third day. And this woman comes to him and says, hey, by the way, can you look out for my boys? Again, sounds shocking, sounds appalling, it sounds nauseating, but we look at that and say, I would do probably the same thing. I love this quote by Evie Hill, one of my favorite pastors ever. He said, this is, this is a little more common vernacular. He said, you can't shack up with the devil and expect the Lord to pay the rent. Let that one wash over and sink in. Some of us live that way. We want to live like the devil. We want to do what we want to do, but we want Jesus as Savior. We want Jesus as the one that would come into our lives and benefit us. We want Jesus to make our lives better. So here's what I want you to see, that this is very simply a selfish request. It is a selfish request. Write that down. A selfish request, and the request is, God, serve me. God, I want you to serve me. On the road to Jerusalem, we see a selfish request. We see the heart of humanity. And in our hearts at times, we begin to ask, Lord, what will you do for me? Can you smooth my life out? Our prayer requests reflect this. God, somebody's got a medical test. Make sure that it's negative. God, somebody's got a, a, a financial crisis. Work it out. God, I've got issues in my family. Would you just make everything happy? And whole and healthy. And the problem is not only are people believing this, but we have churches and pastors that teach it. You make God to be what you want him to be and he'll do for you what you want. It is an absolutely selfish request. And we have got to move past that if we're going to experience the power of his kingdom. Now, as we move forward, I, I, I was drawn to this this morning in our Sunday school class in John chapter 12. It says, many of the people believed, but they were afraid to admit it. And my Bible is pretty clear. If you're afraid to confess the Lord, then he says, I will deny you before the Father. If we're not willing to share openly that God is not only Savior, but he's Lord, we would submit ourselves to him, then it's nothing more than a selfish request. And we're treating God as if we're the master and he's the servant. God, serve me. 
In Matthew 20, going back to it in verse 22, basically, Jesus replied, you don't know what you're asking for. What a stern and powerful statement. He asked the question, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And I want you to see that this cup is not just dying. This is the the cup that he would wrestle in the Garden of Gethsemane to the point of sweating drops of blood over. The wrestling point was this. He is about to become sin. He is about to take on the bitterness of all of the sins of all of the world. And in taking that on, in wrestling through this, he says, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink that cup? And what do they answer? Sure. Yep. We got this, Lord. I mean, you don't believe me. Just look right there. He, he says it, or they say it. They simply say, oh, yes, we are able. They, they've spent three and a half years with him, and this is their response. Isn't it just like us to overestimate our abilities and to minimize our needs? Lord, I got this one. Lord, I'm good. And we turn away from the very source of power that could meet the needs of our lives. And for you and for me this morning, I want us to see ourselves on the road to Jerusalem because Jesus has stopped for a couple of days. And in that stopping, he shares with his disciples that the plan of God is unfolding. He's going to be killed and resurrected. And we see this selfish glimpse into the heart of man. I hope we see ourselves here and repent of that, that we would see together. So now the other disciples are indignant with these two. I I kind of was amused by this. I mean, why did you bring your mom? I can't believe you brought your mom. Secretly, I bet they're going, I wish I'd brought my mom. Right? I mean, they asked this horrible question, but really what they're thinking is, They just beat us to the punch. I would have asked that if I'd been that bold. And Jesus says, you don't even understand. Your thoughts are man-centered thoughts. You're thinking in worldly terms. You're living with your eyes and not your ears. You don't lead by ruling. You lead by serving. And so Jesus is going to give some paradox. And by the way, all of these roads will begin to show us some incredible paradox. I mean, you would think that a coronation of a king would be splendor and majesty, and yet it was lowly and humble. You would think it would lead to the release of the people, but it led to their judgment. And we'll see that in a moment. But there's paradox here. And in this paradox, he's beginning to show them that this selfish request is the the context. Now, let me give you a little more context. This is the time of Passover. Three times of year, all of the men of all of Israel had to travel to Jerusalem. A spring feast, there was one in the middle, and then a fall feast. And Passover was a time that they would all go back to Jerusalem. The crowds would swell. Uh, There would be many, many people coming. The road is loaded with travelers. And Jesus, even more so, is followed by throngs of people. They've seen him heal. They've seen him speak and preach words of power and authority. They've got expectations of him becoming their king and being their king. And in this time of Passover, by the time they get to the city, there's probably two to three million people in and around Jerusalem. I mean, think about the biggest, most packed crowd you've ever been involved with. It's bigger than Mardi Gras. This This is one of those things where there's a sea of humanity gathering, all flooding down toward the temple, and Jesus is on his way there. 
And he stops in Jericho and he stops there for a couple of days, 17 miles away from the city. And he does a miracle. And this miracle takes us to the second point I want you to see. Not only a selfish request, God serve me, but I want you to see a staggering reality. And this staggering reality is very, very pointed. Look with me, if you will, in verse 29 and following. And Jesus and his disciples left the town of Jericho. A large crowd followed behind. Two blind men were sitting beside the road. And when they heard that Jesus was coming that way, they began shouting, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Be quiet, the crowd yelled at them. But they only shouted louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And when Jesus heard them, he stopped and he called, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, they said, we want to see. And Jesus felt sorry for them. He was moved with compassion for them. And he touched their eyes and instantly they could see. And I want you to see these last four words. Then they followed him. I want you to see this. They walked in darkness and they walked away in light following the master. This is significant for us to see a very staggering reality. Two blind men crying out. The blind men knew who Jesus was. They called him twice son of David. That is a messianic term. All throughout the Old Testament, there was a promise that one from the line of David, the lineage of David, would sit on a throne forever. Jesus called the son of David would be the one who would fulfill that promise. And these blind men knew it. They called out Messiah is what they're saying. They're saying, Lord, Rabbi, son of David, this is so tied to the people on their way to Passover, celebrating the Jewish history and missing it completely that the Messiah Messiah is in their midst. Fascinating to me. Those who couldn't see, they were blind, they could see. Those who could see, couldn't see. Sometimes there's a staggering reality for us that we see things and we, uh, we, we begin to perceive things as we perceive them and we just determine we know what's right. I've said this for several years now. We have two choices in life. We will either live as people of the eye, seeing and perceiving what we choose, or we will live by the word of God, people of the ear. We will hear what God says and believe it. They had obviously heard the word of God, and they took it to heart. And I love this. It says he healed them, and they followed him. What a powerful picture. So we see on the road a a staggering, staggering reality. And it's this, that faith is required. That you're going to have to believe, not by sight. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. Don't miss that. They followed him. So this is the context of the triumphal entry. We've not gotten to the, the true road to Jerusalem coming down the Mount of Olives yet. But we've seen a very selfish request. We've seen an incredible miracle that was sparked by faith. And we see followers, true followers of Jesus coming after him by faith. This Holy Week really is all about you doing some introspection. You looking in your own heart and saying, am I following God by faith? Am I trusting in God? I mean, really to the place where I would do what he tells me to do? Many of us are like those Pharisees in John 12 who believed up here and it said they were scared to death. They were afraid to admit it because they enjoyed the applause of man far, far more than the approval of God. 
There are people in churches all around the world today that are there for all the wrong reasons. And I'm thankful people are there. Perhaps they'll hear truth and the truth will penetrate their heart. And I'm not just saying there, I'm saying in here and online. If you're here today and hearing these words, I hope that you would wake up to the reality that our lives are centered around selfishness. And God says, you must trust me by faith. And when you do, I will work miracles in your life and you follow me forward into my kingdom. That's what happened. There are two blind men in this crowd and they are following Jesus. Their testimony must have been powerful. There was a time in my life I couldn't see a thing. People led me around by the hand and I met Jesus. And when I met Jesus, he gave me sight and he gave me purpose and he gave me hope. And they followed in and they grabbed up palm branches for a whole different reason because they celebrated the true victory, not the one that everyone else was expecting. So the context of the triumphal entry is a a selfish request. People want God to serve them. And a staggering reality that faith is required for you to follow God. And now we come to chapter 21, verse 1. And let's look together. This is the end of the road. This is the final leg in the journey of Jesus' life. Let's begin at the, the beginning. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, and as soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. Now, Bethpage is a little hamlet. It's not even on the map anymore. Probably a hundred people or so. It's on the south side of the Mount of Olives. It's about a half mile from Jerusalem. And Jesus sends two disciples there. And as he sends them there, we know from Luke's account that it was Peter and John. And as we tell, as he tells them to go to that place, it would be interesting to me to know what was going through their minds. I mean, just walk with me for a second. They've been walking with Jesus for three and a half years, right? What all have they seen? They have seen the lame walk, the the deaf hear, the dumb speak, lepers cleansed, the dead raised. They saw Jesus walk on water. They saw Jesus feed the 5,000. They saw all of these things. In fact, John said it was amazing. John came to the end of his book and he said this in John 21. He said, if Jesus did so many other things, if they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books of them. I mean, think about this with me, folks. Don't tune out. We don't know how many lame walked. We don't know how many blind saw. We don't know how many were, were treated in those ways. But we know that the greatest life that has ever been lived and the most pointed three years of ministry that have ever occurred in all of existence. And it's all about to end. And Jesus knows that in his heart. It's Passover. And he says, go into the village and take these two animals, this donkey and its colt. I just have to wonder what Peter and John were thinking. Wait, hang on, Jesus. You, you mean we're just supposed to take them? I mean, that starts smelling like grand theft auto to me, Jesus. I don't know that I want to go down that road. And, and if, they, if somebody stops me, what am I supposed to tell? You just tell them the Lord needs them. Okay. 
I mean, they've seen all these incredible things. Why does this work? Why is it that there is somebody there ahead of them that would be prepared? Here's why. It's number three, a sobering reminder. God is in control. Now, you'll need to see this. All of the horrible stuff that's about to happen in this week, Jesus controls it all. God is in charge. And this is really odd. Why would he tell them this? Why would he say, go and get me a donkey? Because of Scripture. Look at verse 4 and following with me. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, this comes from Isaiah and Zechariah, this. Tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. He's not just riding on the donkey. We've got this picture that we need to help out. Every drawing that I've ever seen, I think is probably wrong. The idea is he's almost still regal riding in on a donkey. He's on the donkey's colt. If you've ever seen in Jerusalem, the men, they are riding donkeys. Oftentimes, they'll ride the colt. They'll ride the smaller one. And their feet are almost dragging the ground. I mean, Jesus is on the colt of a donkey. Kings don't ride donkeys. Kings ride white horses. They ride stallions. But why is this working? Because God planned it all. You see, Zechariah wrote that 500 years before this day. Isaiah wrote 700 years before this day it was going to happen. We studied Daniel for an entire year. And folks, I hope you remember this, that 483 years before, God had given Daniel a clear picture, this will happen. And it did at the exact moment of time. The decree for the temple to be rebuilt 483 years later to the day Jesus rides into the city, the the road to Jerusalem. God is in control. And it's a sobering reminder for us today. When you begin to make your selfish request, stop yourself and say, am I living by faith or living by sight? That's what Holy Week ought to bring for all of us. It's just a simple mirror that we hold up and say, am I trusting in God or am I trusting in me? Very pointed. It's exactly what and when the Word of God said would happen. It's a divine plan. If we read on, it says that they laid their coats before him. It's a sign of surrender and authority. If you were to look in 2 Kings 9, you would see that they did this for Jehu and other kings. They submitted their authority. I I think it's almost in part like identification too. I mean, they, they laid their coats on the donkey and then they began to lay their coats on the ground. I bet they picked those coats back up and go, hey, Jesus walked on on this one. It's kind of like catching that home run baseball at the game and going, I was there and I got it. Well, the crowds gathered around and they remembered all of these things. In fact, I want you to think with me. They are on their way to something they've done over and over again. They've gone to Passover numerous times. And in the book of Psalms, there's a section of Psalms from 113 to 115. It's called, or 118, excuse me, five Psalms, the Hillel. They sang these with, with, with familiarity. It would be like you and me singing Christmas carols. We just know them. And they knew them. And they were singing these songs of God's deliverance. And they were looking forward to the king. And now he's on a donkey. And wait, this could be it. And the crowd begins to grow. There's two million in the city. But they begin to line the streets all along the way down the Mount of Olives. And they're crying out, Hosanna. They're waving palm branches. Now, what what is to do with these palm branches? 
If we look forward in Revelation 7, verse 9, you see that there's a numerable gathering there. And that innumerable gathering are all around the throne and they're waving palm branches, which are a sign of victory, a coronation of a king. And they're saying, Hosanna, which literally means save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Our king is here. I mean, we, we sang earlier, the king is coming. And yes, that is true. But there, in their day, he is right there just as God had promised. Just when God had promised. And they're saying, the king has arrived. And he's going to save us. In fact, they shouted that. Save now. I want you to shout that with me. Let's say those two words. You ready? Save now. I mean, they just cried out. If we all had palm branches, we'd wave them and we would say that over and over again. Hosanna, save now. Say it with me. Save now. The idea is that they would be saved by their king. The problem is, what did they want salvation from? He's going to save us from Rome. He's going to deliver us from Rome. The Romans have taken over space. They've occupied our city. They've occupied God's space. And this king is going to take the, the Roman yoke off of our neck. This king is going to drive the armies of Rome out of Jerusalem. This king is going to take their taxes and their soldiers and give them the boot. We'll be free to stop the oppression. Listen to me. Here's the sobering reminder that God's in control. They wanted a temporary solution, and he knew something deeper. They thought that their biggest problem was Rome. You know what their biggest problem was? Sin. And Jesus came to deal that. Write, write this statement down. It's not on the screen. They knew his kingship, but they did not know his kingdom. They knew that he had authority. They knew that he had power. They'd seen it. They'd experienced it. He touched two blind men just 17 miles ago. And they see him. They're right over there. He raised the dead. He walked on water. He fed the 5,000. He did all of these miraculous things. They understood that he was special. But they did not want to submit. Ladies and gentlemen, I would submit to you that that is the need of this room today. Some of you have never had the King of Kings with a triumphal entry into your heart. And you need to trust Him today. You need to stop making selfish requests and say, I'll accept Him as Savior, but never as Lord. It doesn't work that way. You trust Him by faith and receive what He has done for you into your life. And you can be set free. And you can be given the promise of eternal life. You will be pardoned. You see, they wanted him to be what they wanted him to be. And lots of people today want that. Will he smooth out my life? Will he make it happy and healthy and wealthy? You make Jesus who you want him to be, and he'll do all for you that you desire. Here's the, the statement that summarizes the whole sermon. Our selfish requests need to meet the staggering reality that faith is required and a sobering reminder that Jesus is in control. Jesus is not going to do what they want. Again, they thought the greatest enemy, uh, greatest enemy they had was Rome, and he knew the greatest enemy they had was sin. And it's not only the greatest enemy to the Israelites, it's the greatest enemy to the people in this room today. All of us will universally be judged. We will give an account for our lives. 
We need a savior. The wages of sin is still death. It's separation from a holy God. And this is a coronation of Jesus, but there's a serious disconnect between their hearts and their lives. It's a coronation with the hopes that he would give them their heart's desire and not their eternal need. The greatest problem we have is sin. Now, there's a contrast. A tale of two entries. Jesus came that day and they told him, Jesus, tell your disciples to stop. And he said, oh, no, no, no. If they cease to praise me, the rocks themselves will cry out. What he was saying is the, the city walls of Jerusalem will cry out that I am the Messiah. The city walls were there hundreds of years before. They knew the prophecies of God. The city walls would cry out and God's creation would give praise. But here's what you need to see. In this time, when they asked Jesus to do what they wanted him to do and to be who they wanted him to be, they offered palm branches. But when he brought judgment and not deliverance, what did they bring him? It went from palms to thorns. From palms to thorns. You ever been mad at God because he didn't do what you wanted him to do? When you wanted him to do it? The way you wanted him to do it? There's a staggering reality for us today that God's in control and we're not. And we need to find ourselves submitted to him. You see, the first entry was humble. It was on the, the colt of a donkey. It, it was before a crowd of just peasants and commoners. Oh, but when he comes the second time? You, you see, the first time he submitted to the Father. In the second time, everybody will submit to him. The Bible says that the entire world will see those under the earth, those on the earth, those above the earth will bow the knee. It says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords, that he's the king of kings forever. He will come in pomp and pageantry and splendor. Queen Victoria's royal robes will look like marbles and toys. They will look like costume jewelry compared to the radiant glory of God who comes with rainbows of living color and flashes of lightning all around the throne and the beauty and the majesty of all of the armies of heaven. Can you imagine an angelic warrior? Just one? In the Old Testament, we see one angel that slew 185,000 men in one night. Just one. And the Bible says that they're innumerable. Can you imagine the marching line of all of the, the armies of God behind King Jesus as he comes to judge the world of sin and of all unrighteousness. And he cast all of his enemies at his feet already into the lake of fire. And he establishes his throne forever and ever and ever. Oh, hallelujah. Save now. Lord, would you save Hattiesburg? Lord, we need to cry out not for our own selfishness. We need to, as a church, begin to recognize that he is coming again as king. And we can cry, oh, Lord, would you save them? And would you use me to testify toward that end? Would you use me to share the love of Jesus with others? Folks, we've got to stop making Jesus what we want him to be and just simply accept him as he is. And when we do, we'll surrender and submit. And what did he do for these men who said, oh, son of David? He gave them sight. He gave them life. There are people in this room, there are people perhaps that are watching us online that are bound up in sin. You've lived a life of, of frustration, trying to put the pieces together. I understand that. I've been there. Many, many, many of the people in this room have been there. They, they were either religious 
or, or they were arrogant, or they were afraid, or they were rebellious, but we all find ourselves in various circumstances of life trying to do it on our own. And when we submit ourselves to God, we receive Jesus Christ fully. Now, this was the first road. We're going to see over the next several days, the road of Jesus would lead him to a place of submission so that ultimately he would be exalted before the world. He would submit himself even to death on the cross for you and for me. He would take what we deserved. He paid a debt that he didn't know. He was innocent. He recognized that we owed a debt that we simply could not pay. It was far beyond our ability ever. And Jesus died for you. Listen to me, church family. The need of your life today is to submit to Jesus. That, that doesn't mean you just need to be saved. And some of you say, well, I'm already saved, check. No, no, no. The need of every person in this room today is to submit to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never done that. Today would be a great, great day to start. It can be your accepted homecoming. You just trust the Lord and say, today I want to be saved. We have prayer partners that will be right down front. We're going to sing in a moment. And as we sing, we want you to come and just take them by the hand. They will show you from God's Word how you can start a relationship with God. For all of those in this room that are saved, if you're a believer, why don't you take this Holy Week as an opportunity, fresh and new, to surrender to Him. To wave palm branches and say, Lord, you are victorious and I want to live in that victory. I want to walk with you. Let's stand together. We're going to sing as our musicians make their way. I'm going to pray, and as soon as I finish praying, we'll sing. And as we sing, you come. Our prayer partners are here. Our encouragers are waiting for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the context of the road to Jerusalem. Thank you, Lord, that we see the exposure of our own hearts, selfishly asking that you would somehow serve us and meet our needs. But Lord, today, I pray that someone who is who has approached you just for your saving abilities would submit themselves to your Lordship. In Jesus' name, by faith, make it be so. Amen.